like you, I often feel that I have so much to do in so little time. Well, it's hard to fall back on that excuse right now, considering our current circumstances. And while I have often appreciated time to dedicate to self-development and introspection, I certainly wish that today was done under much better circumstances. Nevertheless, I'm trying to make choices that are more than just about killing time with diversions and distractions. On my better days, I try to reconsider where I am and where I'm going with my personal and my creative life. Turning the lens inward can provide a unique and invaluable time. Though I can lament the lack of photo opportunities right now, I believe that times like these allow me to reconsider what I hope to create and express in my photography. It's an idea that I share with David Dushman, who is as much a philosopher as he is a photographer. Spurred by his latest book, The Heart of the Photograph, we sat down to discuss the stage in a photographer's life when they go beyond the technical side and begin to use the camera to express something uniquely human. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Uh, how you been? I'm good. I'm good. You know, as good as we can be. Everyone's yeah. healthy on, on my end. And Excellent. so far, my, the people in my life who are at risk are okay. Good. So, good. Um, you know, take it day by day and just keep walking with a, in a state of gratitude for what I do have. Because I know a lot of people are doing with a, a lot less and they're living under day-to-day circumstances that are beyond challenging. So... It sure is strange times, eh? Yeah. It's getting to be a bit of a cliche to say how surreal it is, but that this doesn't seem to be a better word to describe what we're all experiencing. In order to just keep myself sanity, I'm doing more than just keeping myself busy. I'm just trying to be a positive force to the people in my orbit. Not just my immediate family, but people who listen to the show or or people I'm just calling who I haven't talked to in a long time and just checking in with them and just seeing how they're doing. You know, I'm trying not to contribute to the wealth of negativity that already already exists out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just it's astonishing. I I've sort of limited my my social networks, but have become much more um, present on them. And I'm finding hope, hoping that you know when this all settles down, we can maintain some of the care and concern and the intimacy of some of these connections that I think the day-to-day kind of busyness has pushed aside. Yeah. And it's just nice to not have the excuse of not being able to chat to someone because we're busy. Like, yeah. Because well, <laughs> <laughs> what else are we doing? There's only so much Netflix you can watch. Yeah. Isn't that true? But reading your book was a nice pleasure during this time. Congratulations. Oh, on how many does this make for you? I think that's number 10. Number 10, man. I got some catching up to do. Yeah. Well, they included in there. I, I, I actually haven't counted for a while, but there's, yeah, does that, yeah, I think it's 10. I think it's 10. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're always a, a pleasure to read. You, you're right like you, like you talk, which is not an easy thing to do. God knows. You know, I, tr- I try. I've started a podcast and I actually realized because I was writing the stuff and then sort of it's more of a, a pre-written monologue style podcast that goes for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I actually realized that I, I need, I've got some work to do if I want to actually write the way that I talk, because my first six or dozen episodes, I sounded very 
sounded very formal and it's taken me a while to kind of figure out exactly kind of how to bring a little more rhythm and naturalness to my writing. But uh, it's been an incredible learning curve. I don't know how you guys do all these podcasts. As it, I tell you, audio is a whole other thing. Anyway, that's completely beside the point. But thank you all actually, the same for the compliment. Actually, it's not because it's just in line with, with, you know, with the spirit of the book. It, it takes a little while to get past sort of the mechanics of it in this case speaking into a mm-hmm. microphone and reading a, a script or whatever it is to the point where you're not really thinking about it, but it just flows mm-hmm. out naturally. I was working at an NPR show, Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and every time he would go in to do the tracking, which is basically reading the script with the intros and all that other stuff, you know, everyone just thought he was just amazing. But the thing is, he's been doing that for, God, over 10, 12, 15 years. So, you know, he gets into the booth, he writes his own script, so he knows how he talks. So when he writes those things, it comes out really naturally. And I mean, he's purposeful in terms of his inflections and how he reads. You know, as with anything, the more you practice, the less you have to think about it and the more intuitive it becomes, which is, mm-hmm. you know, really at the heart of your, your book, the heart of the photograph. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was interesting for me to read because this place that you're exploring in the book is exactly the place that I've been for the last couple of years, getting away from the mechanics of photography and really trying to create a space where I can be more intuitive and, and responsive to how I'm, I'm feeling less than what I'm thinking about the photograph. And mm-hmm. early in the book, you make an interesting, interesting anecdote where someone who was a sort of a critic of the way that you were sharing photography said, you know, when I signed up to do photography, I didn't intend to have to think this much. <laughs> <laughs> and I completely get the, the complaint, but talk, sure. talk, share about the response to that comment and how it sort of ties in with what you wanted to do with the book. Well, I, I've long been a proponent of a very intentional approach to our craft. And, you know, when I first started teaching photography, I talked a lot about vision and I and still talk a lot about vision, although now I talk about it in terms very often of intent because the vision metaphor at a certain point point kind of gets stretched beyond the point of breaking. And, you know, when we learn a language, our our initial efforts at that language, uh, not only are they awkward, but, you know, we have to spend a lot of time learning about the structure and, you know, the verbs and the nouns and learning vocabulary. And we give it a lot of front of mind thought. But as you do that for longer and longer and longer, you get to a point where you're no longer thinking about it. I mean, I, I, I could not be having this conversation with you uh, as a as a five-year-old. Not only would I not be having those thoughts, but I wouldn't know how to express them. And I think the same is true in our craft as photographers. You know, after a while, you do become more intuitive, but it doesn't just happen with time. It happens with time and focus and learning and thought. And so when you first pick up a camera, no, you you will not walk out and just instinctively see all of these things together and be thinking about how do I deal with the light and how do what do I do in terms of my, I mean, it's one thing to, to expose a photograph well, but to do it in a way that's intentional, that also takes into consideration, do I want a slower shutter speed? Do I want greater depth of field? And then at the same time to be thinking about composition and your point of view and what do you do with the lines and, oh my God, what lens do I use? 
I can understand why there would be people out there, especially early on, that are like, give me a break. How can I how can I think this hard and still make a photograph? And I would just argue that with time, these concerns become more intuitive. They become more instinctive. But you do at the beginning, like a language, you do have to learn this stuff. So this book is just really, it's an approach to thinking like a photographer. And and it's not a checklist. It's not, you know, the subtitle is, you know, something like 100 questions for stronger, more expressive photographs. And I'm quite sure there's someone out there like this guy we're talking about now that's going, oh my God, I, 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 if I start asking these questions, by the time I get to 100, you know, three weeks will have passed, the scene will have gone, the light will have disappeared, and the moment will be gone forever. How could I possibly think all these things? And my response to that, as it would be with this other guy, is you have to think about these things in order to make the choices that you make, or it's going to be completely ad hoc. It's going to be simply a, I went out with my camera, and I pointed it and I chose some settings randomly and that's just the way it ended up. And I think we can do better. I think that if our choices with a particular lens create an aesthetic in our image and really do either make or break the photograph, then we must on some level give some thought to those things. And at the beginning, it will be harder. But after a while, after you've thought this through, after you've you become sort of more conversant with these, you know, with the vocabulary and the nouns and verbs of the photographic language, it does become you get to this point where, you know, it's kind of this state of grace and you don't have to think quite so hard about it. To me, that's when you, you know, if any of us get to mastery, that's kind of it. That's the point at which the thinking becomes less front of mind and, and simply becomes this creative you know, the state of flow, that's how you get to it. It doesn't happen as soon as just because you pick up a, a really, really good camera at B&H. But what do you make of, of people who seem to, you know, aren't well versed in sort of the technical aspects of photography, at least in terms of explaining it to the degree that we often do in our books or when we're teaching, but who seem to be almost naturally in, intuitive, especially when you take a look at the work? Um, honestly, I don't know, because there are very few that I think that if you looked very carefully at their work, you wouldn't see a learning curve at the beginning. You wouldn't see the way that they have, you know, gone from some from zero to 60. I honestly, I don't know. I, in my experience, most people, if you look back at their history, maybe they haven't been photographers for a long time, but they've been visual designers or they've been painters or, or they have some experience with visual language and design. So that gets them a little bit ahead of the curve. But I, I would argue there are very few people that are that immediately gifted with a camera in their hands. I think there are, you know, even guys like Joey Lawrence, you know, Joey L. I, yeah. I mean, he's just mm -hmm. so incredibly talented. But I'm quite sure that if he was that brilliant before he picked up a camera and if, and I don't know what's the case, if his learning curve was shorter than all of us think it was, he's probably the outlier because most people I know just take time to learn this stuff. There's, And that would be encouraging. I mean, I otherwise I would be very despondent, especially for my students, because I mean, there are so many choices you make when you pick up a camera. And if it's just a question of, well, you got it or you don't, then 
What do you do about all those people that struggle to get it? And eventually they do. Eventually, I mean, I see people improve in their craft when they start thinking through these things and processing them. And over time, because it's not just one decision, it's like a thousand. <laughs> over time, they become a little easier with this. They get into flow a little quicker. They discover other creative things like their own voice and their vision. So I don't know that there's as many people as we like to think that just picked up the camera and were a natural. I know I wasn't a natural at it. I had some talent or propensity for this. But if you look at the, my learning curve and how my images have changed, it, it's taken years to get to a point where I really feel like it's truly my work and not just me copying other people or exercises in how to use the camera. Yeah, I think if if that really does exist, it's probably a tenth of a percent of people who would just come to it naturally without that sort of initial arc. Just some kind of rounding error, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. the rest of us have to put in the time. It's, it's that 10,000 hours. Last time I was in Paris, I had the opportunity to uh, see retrospective of the work of Walker Evans. Oh, from the very beginnings all the way to the end. And it was fascinating because I could see his evolution. I could see how he was changing the way he was seeing, the way he was responding to the camera, the way he was, you know, basically evolving. It gave me so much more of an appreciation for his work because I had known him, you know, since that seminal book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen all the work you know, that he was sort of famous for. So when you're only looking at the best work uh, a seminal photographer has created, it's easy to think that it just came naturally, but seeing his development and seeing all that exhaustive body of work was really heartening for me to see because I saw him growing, changing, taking risks in ways that I could relate to. And I think mm -hmm. that's really heartening and it's an important thing that I try to express when I'm teaching and I think that you get across in the book. But saying that, it's still a hard concept to... To express in a way that people get it. So uh, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I think a lot of people pick up a camera because it is just by virtue of you know the the nature of it being a technological thing. It is easier on some level than learning to play piano or you know becoming a, a fantastic poet or even you know painting or sketching. These things are on the surface of them, we think they are harder. But the reality is a tool is a tool and learning to master not only your tool, but the raw materials, things like light and time. These are some things that, that take a while and evolution is, I mean, it doesn't just happen just because we carry a camera around for 30 years. It happens when we look at our work and we learn from it. And as you point out, you know, you study the masters, you look at people like Walker Evans or one of my favorite books for this is the Magnum Contact Sheets, because yeah. you're not mm -hmm. just looking, you're not really looking at the evolution of these artists, but you are looking at the context of that one iconic photograph is 23 other shots that you look at and go, ah, okay, yeah. well, you know, if, if they're taking 23 shots to kind of get to the point <laughs> visually, if they're kind of, they need those 23 images to get the dust off and kind of grease the wheels of their creativity, maybe it's not so bad that I take some time to take some, you know, take some risks and make some, I call them sketch images and play a little bit because, hey, you know, one out of, I, I'd consider myself lucky if I got one out of 24 that really worked that well. And I think that one of the things that I found in the book that I thought was sort of the linchpin for people to be able to do that is letting go of that concept of a good photograph. 
and not being a slave to that concept of looking at photographs as good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, th- why don't you touch a little bit on how you explore that in, in the book? Yeah, I, I, I think this idea of a good photograph is so... it's. Uh, I'm going to use a a word I don't think I've ever used before, but it's pernicious. It's (laughs) throughout the modern kind of popular photography culture is this idea of, is it good? And boy, talk about a moving target. I mean, I don't think you could have a more vague criteria of, of judgment than just this vague, is it good? And so, you know, so then what we do is we settle on things like, you know, is it sharp? Is it is it focused? Is it well exposed? Have I not blown out my highlights? Have I got detail in my shadow? All of these little kind of things that we go down the checklist and we go, okay, check, focus, check. But what if the photographer, what if the point is not focus? What if it's not sharp? You know, would you look at, at some of the great iconic photographs of the last hundred years and go, yeah, you know, it's not sharp. So it's not it doesn't move me. It's not compelling. It's, it's, you know, instead, why are we not asking, is it interesting? Is it, you know, is it dark and moody? Is it bright? Is it, you know, whatever that thing that you want it to be, is it that? Does it accomplish that first for you? And then if it's, if you're interested in this, does it do it for other people? Because otherwise, you're standing there, you've got a scene in front of you and thinking, okay, my goal is to make a good photograph well, um, my God, you've got a thousand options. What go? What direction do you go in? Do I, do I use a three hundred millimeter to, lens to make it good, or do I use an eighteen millimeter lens? Is, do I use motion blur? Do I put on my polarizer? I don't know. But if you ask, you say to yourself, "Okay, what what to me would make this?" If we have to use the word "good," you know, what would make it a successful photograph? Mm-hmm. What do I want from this image? You know, one of the other that the flip side of this is we look at the photograph of others. And we also judge according to, you know, is it good or isn't it? But we don't listen to the photograph. We don't think to ourselves, I wonder what the photographer wanted to accomplish with this photograph. And based on that, were the settings they chose with the choice of moment and the way they dealt with light or the composition, did, did all of those combine to create a photograph that succeeded, that did what the photographer wanted to do. And that's, I guess that's where, you know, the whole conversation of vision comes full circle. And you say, well, it's, it is up to the individual photographer. And you may not like the decisions that Avedon made or Ansel Adams or pick your favorite photographer. You may not, you may look at it and go, eh, doesn't work for me. That doesn't make it an unsuccessful photograph for that photographer. It just means you're not the audience. And I think it's a, it's an act of extreme hubris to sort of assume that our judgment of these photographs makes it or does not make it good when there may be an entire audience for that photograph that thinks it's the, the most powerful image they've ever seen in their lives. Just like a film or a music, you know, is U2 good? I mean, I think so. I love U2. But other people would be like, eh, never heard of them, don't care for them, let's, you know, let's play some disco, and I don't like disco. So I think we need to, we need to acknowledge that our tastes are completely separate from what the photographer is actually accomplishing or trying to accomplish. Yeah, when I was reading that, I had uh, the analogy that popped into my mind is the criteria that the Kennel Club uses for uh, judging a dog at those dog shows. Right. And using that to determine which of them is a good dog. Mm. You know? It's like That's a great analogy. It, it has yeah. nothing to do with whether that dog is a good dog or not. It's based this is this cri- <laughs> this is this criteria that's been accepted as a standard 
by which everyone has to sort of apply. But whether or not it's a person's a good dog is completely subjective. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, as a photographer, if you were trying to hit this target of a good, I, I just think it's it's robbing us of the creative freedom to, you know, I, I bring that conversation in the book around to the my point, which is forget making an image that's good, make an image that is yours. And, and then you're talking. Now you've got some criteria to judge it on, if only for yourself. Did it do what you wanted it to do? That's the most important thing. That's if you look at the great art, not to compare myself at all, but if you look at the great artists of, of history, you know, you might disagree on whether it's to your taste. You know, you look at Picasso and you make the usual cliched comments about my kid could do that. But your kid didn't do that. And your kid is not Picasso. Picasso did his work and created and and you can look at his work and say that is uniquely Picasso's and it may not do anything for me, but it, it obviously did something for Picasso. And I think it would be healthier for us. It would give us greater creative freedom and probably make our evolution go a little faster in our craft if we kind of started shooting for something a little bit better than simply good because that just that just shackles us to these ideas that everything has to be sharp and well exposed and i don't subscribe to that i think some some of the best photographs are you know would be five stops under or overexposed relative to what the camera wanted and they're blurry and they're you know and yet they grab something in your imagination or in your heart and make it far more compelling than some of these very mediocre very sharp very saturated very you know quote unquote perfect images on instagram that really, frankly, just do nothing yeah. for me. Yeah, and, and and I think you know emulation is certainly a part of of the learning process as as photographers. You see someone else's work, you try to understand how they made those images. You kind of learn the mechanics of your camera so you sort of can replicate that. But that only gets you so far. Well, and I see an abundance of that uh, on Instagram on Flickr. But there are some people who do it in a way that's very unique to them. They're you know they're they're People who emulate, like Fan Ho, for example, who uh -huh. created these very high contrast black and white imagery uh, in, in the 50s and 60s that has inspired a lot of, of photographers. And there are probably one or two photographers who are currently shooting along those lines who do it in a, in a way that's unique to them. And when sure. I look at their work, I'm not reminded of Fan Ho. I think about, oh, this is this photographer, right? I mean, I look on Instagram and I immediately know that, oh, it's this person, or another person who does portraiture. I look at them and I go, oh, that's Michelle's work. And, mm -hmm. and I think that it really comes from, from really embracing a personal way of seeing. You know, and, as you, and as you say, posing the question, not at what am I photographing, but what about what I'm photographing is resonating with me? What is drawing my attention? And then making a series of choices to translate that focus that you have in your mind's eye into the confines of the photograph. And I think that that is really where that establishing that voice, I'm not talking about style, but establishing mm -hmm. a voice begins, mm -hmm. is by asking mm -hmm. yourself, well, what is it about this thing or this moment or this whatever it is that is arresting my attention? And how can I use all the things that I know thus far about using a camera to express that? Mm -hmm. And I think that without asking yourself the question, all you're relying on is the camera to do some magic for you and luck yeah. to play it off. Mm -hmm. And I think that the challenge is 
not so much to become intuitive, but becoming cons- consistent. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that proves so elusive to people. You know, here, here, this, is, this is better to the point. I think that people judge their consistency by waiting too much of the quote-unquote bad images that they make. And not really accepting the fact that you have to make a lot of bad images or images that don't work to get to the one that does. And if you're making a judgment on yourself of all the images that fall short, then you're going to think that you're not being consistent. And the fact is, no, that's part of the process to get the images. And as you call and you process how much you've shot over months or years, you get to see what your style and what your body of work is. But you can't pass judgment on all those tens of thousands of photographs that you make that fall short, especially since having a sense of your development is not immediately, isn't immediately evident when you're in the midst of those kinds of transitions. Does that make sense? I, I think it absolutely does. I think you're right in, in uh, I mean, everything you said makes absolute sense. I think, first of all, I, I think we probably shouldn't even be judging our work per se at all. It, it really is something that you can only no, in hindsight, I think, you know, great writers have got a lot of really bad first drafts and second drafts oh, and third drafts yeah, yeah. behind them. And, you know, you, you look at the stories of Stephen King and how many manuscripts he, you know, he sent in and got rejection letters for. And he just, if you judge your work according to the sketches and the iterations and the poor first drafts and, you know, I've have, I have hundreds of thousands of images on my hard drives they are my sketches. They're the work that gets me to the the strong stuff. And to look at that and require that you shoot less of the bad stuff is only going to push you to take fewer risks and to, in the end, make work that is safer and less like you and more like everyone else. And, you know, when I'm teaching, when I do these workshops and I ask someone, hey, let me let me see what you shot. I mean, the first thing they do is get very defensive and kind of awkward and they don't want to show me what's on the back of their camera because they think I want to see great results and they're embarrassed. They're like, well, I, I didn't really, you know, and and what I'm looking for is not that great photograph and be able to pat them on the back and say, well done, this is really good. What I'm looking to see is have they been taking risks? Have they actually been putting the camera to their face and trying this? Okay, I take this, I take a couple of frames. No, that doesn't work. I try over here. And I, I'm sorry, if you're not making, you know, some people work differently than I do. And I acknowledge that. But if you're not making a lot of frames, if you're not trying a lot of things, for me, that's actually pushing the shutter and looking at the results, but you're just not going to get there. It's no amount of thinking about it, no book reading, no settings on your camera is going to get you to, you know, beyond the emulation to that point where, you know, as you said, you look at someone's work and what they've created, the you respond to the image and go, you know what, that thing that I love so much about Fan Ho, I see something of that in your work, rather than this just looks like a Fan Ho, Mm -hmm. you know, imitation. And to me, that's the difference between adapting and adopting. And that's a transition. It's not one or the other. There's a a spectrum between them. Initially, when you pick up a camera and you start looking at the work of people that you love, you know, for me, when I was younger, it was guys like Karsh and uh, Ansel Adams. And, you know, I had all kinds of influences and I would like wholesale just adopt it, try to imitate 
And over time, it became more of, uh, rather than that adoption, it became an adaptation. It, it sort of, I was started to combine influences and I started to leave the stuff that wasn't working for me, but borrow some of the things that did and combine them with other things. And that's all art is that. You can't look at anyone and just say, there's no paper trail on this guy. Like he just came out of nowhere. There, there is always an evolution, you know, from in, in the history of this. And, and I think we need to embrace it. I think we need to say, you know what, there's going to be a time when you, you're going to imitate, you're going to try new things, you're going to look at the work of Joe McNally, and you're going to try it out. But at a certain point, you're going to say, you know, it, this doesn't really fit me very well at little bits of it. But what if I what if I did this? And what if I added this? And, and soon you're shooting your own thing. That's like a combination of it's like putting Joe McNally and, you know, Joey L and Ansel Adams and Avedon into a blender. And you get this thing that's got bits of them, but is distinctly and uniquely your own. I think that's a win, but it takes time. None of us get there just by picking up the camera and getting our settings right. Yeah, and I think one of the things for me that I try to drum into anyone who's who I'm spending time with trying to share what I do is that they leave way too soon. They make too few frames. They'll, we they'll, always do. They, yeah. they walk up on a scene that has some potential, they make two or three frames, if that, and then they move on. And it's mm -hmm. like, there was like a gem of something here. Right. And maybe that moment hadn't played out itself, played itself yet, but instinctively you recognized it. But for whatever reason, you felt like you could only spend so much time here and you decided to move on in the hunt of thinking that you, may, you might find something better. And that first mm -hmm. thing could have been the best thing of the day. But because of your sort of natural or unnatural impatience, you don't exhaust all the, all the possibilities here. And I think that that in my opinion, is the thing that hampers so many photographers' growth until they get to the point that they understand that, you know, you really need to uh, not only, you have to let go of this idea that you're going to find this magical moment and that all it is is good reflexes and a modern camera, right? <laughs> it's no, hell no. You know, you could, I could make a picture with a 30-year-old Nikon you know, using the ideas that I, I, I share all the time and I could pull off an image. It might not have as high a resolution or have as much color fidelity as a camera of today, but the heart of the image would still be there. And sure. like you said, we all do it. I, I do still do it sometimes, you know, I just leave, even though I know I should stay there. And mm -hmm. um, I've gotten better and better at that, but that really is sort of at the heart of it. And not just blindly making a bunch of photographs, it's carefully assessing what's playing out in front of the frame and making all those micro adjustments, shifting to the left, shifting to the right, moving down, maybe changing the exposure. It's all those little, those little changes that make such a huge, huge difference. So how, you know, you said yourself, sometimes you, you leave a scene prematurely or you, or, or something like that. What do you do to sort of keep yourself committed to letting a scene sort of go until it plays itself out? Well, I, I think it's largely it's a matter of experience. The longer I do this and the more that I acknowledge that often my best work, if you look at my contact sheets and you look at, okay, David showed up on a scene and he made some pictures and five frames later I go and in those five frames, you find my best image. That almost never happens. It's, it's a progression. It's an evolution. David showed up uh, the first 12 images are garbage. <laughs> the, the next 12 images are only slightly an improvement on the garbage. 
And but the longer I stay there, the more I shake the dust off my thinking, the more I notice things, the more I'm like, ah, oh, okay, I've been here for 20 minutes. I didn't until this moment, I didn't notice that color combination or the juxtaposition of this with that or you know that distracting thing over there and if i just change my pov or my optics you know and so you put 20 minutes in and the job of i think the job of the photography we have a lot of jobs to do but one of the most significant is simply to notice to be perceptive and to be present and uh, observant and i don't know anyone that does that uh, consistently in, in just walking around and, be, you know, 30 seconds here and 30 seconds there. And, and as you say, that the sum of our photographic skill is chalked up to re great reflexes. You know, I look at my work and I can see a very clear correlation between how long I waited for something. And sometimes it doesn't show, you know, sometimes it does not show that thing just doesn't happen. And then you know what? you go back. You, that time is not wasted. You know, it's one of the reasons I encourage people to stay in one place. You know, don't don't go to Italy and, and in 10 days try to see it all. Go to Venice and in 10 days keep going back to the same places, see the same place in different light, different times of day with different characters and get some of that initial, oh my God, look, a gondola. Get that out of the way so that over time you're seeing combinations of things and you're more perceptive and you can screw up for a whole day, but maybe those screw ups are sketch images that give you ideas and the next day you go and conditions are right and the person walks into the frame and then you get it. But I, in my experience is that uh, the older I get, the more willing I am to stay and see things through just because I've, my experience tells me that's what works for me. I don't have the reflexes to just see something and get it on the first. I'm just not that lucky. You know, I, I mean, all of our shots are lucky on some level, but I'm not so lucky that I can just walk through New York for a weekend and create magic. I, I need to, I would, if I was going to New York for a weekend, I would like concentrate on like, I don't know, a small area of 10 blocks or something and just walk it and explore it and, wait for these wonderful moments to show up. Thanks to the many of you who continue to support the show during this difficult time. I know it can be hard when faced with our current challenges, but I so appreciate you staying committed to the work that we do here on the show. In the coming weeks, I hope to bring more content to you that may help you navigate these challenging times, both personally and professionally. So thank you so much for sticking by us. But if you haven't already and you can, please consider contributing to our Patreon effort. By contributing just $5 a month, you're helping us to do much of what we couldn't do otherwise. Join us today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you so much. There's one image in the book and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find it here. I should have made a note about it, but it's uh, a group of men. Uh, they're by a, a river and I think it's, mm -hmm. it looks like it's at mm -hmm. dusk. And one of the men towards the center of the frame, his right arm is outstretched and he's pointing. Yeah. And then his placement of his finger is right at the horizon line. I looked at that shot and I was like, ooh. And it was and it was just that small, the small position of the finger on the horizon line. That small little mm. detail that for me 
was just a lovely flourish. The entire frame was great, right? But it was that little attention to that. That's something I'm always focusing on. And for me, when I'm making those sort of micro adjustments, usually it's a matter of just millimeters sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? And I know probably no one else is going to notice that but me. But, you know, I'm making my, the pictures for myself. You know, the, yeah. the satisfaction of being able to recognize something as subtle as that and being able to hone everything that I know to convey that in the photograph. And for me, that's one of the great pleasures of making, uh, making images are those challenges that I present to myself to see whether or not I can take these different elements, as small as they may be, mm-hmm. but create a relationship between all of them that makes it really work. Like one of the things that I really appreciated in your book that I'm going to steal from you every time I, I teach from now on is you talked about the rule of thirds. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't quote you on it, but... It made me think about, you know, often when people talk about the rule of thirds, they say, okay, put your subject into one of those third areas, right? Mm-hmm. And you made the point, that you're making the point in that, in, that, in that chapter about, yeah, but it's also about the other things you put in the frame. That the placement of that subject using the rule of third is only part of the process. You have to think about what else is in the frame that's going to create balance or tension for the entire mm-hmm. composition. And I think that... When people sort of learn and apply the the rule of thirds, they're forgetting that it's not just that singular choice that's going to lead you to make a a, a better composition. It's consideration for everything else. And I think that's really where the development of the photographer's eye really comes into into play. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think the, uh, you know, ultimately, I mean, we don't perceive, we talk about the photographer's eye, we, we don't perceive with our eyes as much as we do with our minds. I, I think we give too little, we dedicate too little time to actually talking about the way that we think as photographers. And, and so we, we shortcut that with little, you know, rules and gimmicks and, you know, and little, little platitudes about the rule of thirds and stuff. But the reality is it's so much more than that. Yes, the rule of thirds is is maybe is a start maybe is a starting place depending on what you want to accomplish. But as you said, it's it's about balance and tension and tension between elements in the frame and the t- frame itself. It's a matter of how the image ends up feeling and what you want to say. And to sometimes the so-called rule of thirds is exactly the thing that you need to focus on. Um, you know, all other things being equal. But sometimes shouldn't it be the rule of six or the rule of sevenths or, you know, smack in the middle, depending on the feel you want and not just the relationship, because the rule of thirds really is about, OK, you got a thing now in relation to the frame, put it on a third. But as you said, what what about the other things in the frame? What about the relationship between all of those and the way that they interact? We so seldom talk about that because there's no rule, you know, that then it just all bets are off and it's like, all right, you're on your own, <laughs> you know, um, and it's it feels safe to stick to the rule of thirds. But it's a good starting point as a very beginner, as long as you understand it's only a starting point. And once you're comfortable with that, then start asking yourself better questions. OK, what else is in the frame? And do I need this? You know, the, the idea I learned one of the first things I ever learned, you probably learned it, too, was you got a person in the frame and they're looking to one side you make sure there's lots of nose room right that they're that they're if they're looking to to the, the their uh left that you put lots of space 
on the left. And yes, that okay, maybe, but that may not be the story you're telling. And when you put someone facing the other way, it says a very distinct thing. It creates a certain amount of tension. And that may be exactly the thing that you need to do in order to make the image feel the way it's going to feel, just the same as blowing out highlights or or protecting your highlights, you know, so much so that you underexpose by five stops and you let your shadows go into complete darkness. You know, these are, are questions of uh, what we call the photographer's eye, but is in, in fact is the way that the photographer is going to think about these things. And until we can encourage students to start thinking for themselves and beyond the platitudes and the shortcuts and the gimmicks, I, I worry that we're just going to have some very frustrated photographers whose work always looks the same and never evolves and changes. Yeah. I have tried to read books on uh, composition, you know, that talk about the Fibonacci numbers and all that other stuff. And, oh, my God. And it's just like, it's, I, I cannot do it. I cannot apply what little I've understood about those things to my photographs. But I completely trust my feeling about something. And mm -hmm. I may use go into Lightroom and use, you know, the different overlays in order to sort of refine the composition, but I'm usually relatively close to there, but I'm still using my gut feeling with respect mm -hmm. to that. And it's taken a long time for me to really rely on on that feeling rather than any sort of technical understanding of, of photography. But sometimes our feelings can be our worst enemy as well. Of course. Right? Yeah. So, and especially if you've photo been photographing for a while, you can sometimes have a, a, a struggle between that intuitive feeling that leads you to make the right choices to make an effective photograph and those feelings that end up self-sabotaging you. It never it sure. completely goes away. So over time, what have been some of the things that have helped you sort of surmount those times when those conflicting emotions are, you know, are at each other. Mm -hmm. I think one of the tendencies we have as human beings is to sort of live within an either or kind of paradigm, right? So it's either either the Fibonacci principle, which don't even get me started. I mean, I like you, I must be the stupidest photographer on the planet. I've read everything I can find on that. And I still go, yeah, I, I don't get it. I just, I, maybe it's because I'm not mathematical and I don't like ratios and, but I just, my eyes gloss over and I just want to stab myself in the face with a fork. So, so I could just, it, it may just be me and other people are going, what? Did Fibonacci transformed my composition. Okay. Is it, is it this really studied, almost mathematical, Mathematical, you know, ratios and that sort of thing? Or is it a trust your gut? When I think wisdom is usually found kind of in the not either or, but both and, and that messy kind of combination where you go, okay, well, let's, let's figure that out. Like, I mean, clearly there are some things that just really work in composition ideas like balance and tension and scale and you can learn all of these things, but learn them like a chef would learn why do you use certain ingredients and then then move to taste you know you're not going to go to 100 restaurants and find that every chef create you know creates the same kind of dish in the same way they all will have certain tastes and some will uh not appeal to you and others will be the best thing you've ever eaten and i think that the chef that is willing to let his tastes be transformed, is willing to learn and grow and th is thoughtful about it rather than just, well, throw more, <laughs> throw more f fat and, and salt on it and it'll taste good. Yeah. I think you can learn these things. Maybe your thing is ratios and numbers and maybe there is something in the golden, golden spiral that I don't understand. 
for others, maybe not, but you can still look at great work and look at the stuff that you love and train your taste and go, okay, I like this. Why do I like it? What's in the frame? And so all the, you know, all the questions that I talk about in the book are not just applicable when you have a camera to your face. They're applicable when you're editing in terms of choosing that final image. They're applicable in post-production and they're applicable on a large scale if you just slightly tweak them to when you're sitting studying the masters, when you pick up a book and you're looking at Willie Roney or Robert Duano or pick your favorite photographer and you're looking at these photographs and you're at, you're in you're not just flipping and swiping and pressing the like button because it's an actual honest to God book, I hope, or prints or whatever. And you're looking at it go, why does that work? I want to, I want to understand why that appeals to me. Is it the way that he used scale? Is it the way that he used balance and tension? Is it, was it the lens that he used? And I don't mean, you know, was it an F 1.8 and super sharp and, but like, you know, what was the behavior of that lens? It may have been that the image works because the depth of field is so shallow. It may be choice of moment. I mean, all of these things, we need a vocabulary so that when we're sitting down asking or looking at this work, we have the words to ask, you know, we have the questions to ask ourselves and learn from so that to go back to the chef, we've allowed our taste to grow a little, right? Allowed other chefs to say, well, you know what? Why don't you try adding a little truffle oil to that recipe? And you go, oh my God, I never, you're right. That's the perfect counterpoint to this other flavor in there. And suddenly you've learned something new. I think it's both. I think we need to study the masters. We need to let our tastes grow and change. Uh, because if you, if we don't, if we're just purely trust my gut, uh, you could go to your grave trusting your gut, but never actually training it, yeah. never exposing it to, to new influence influences. And there have been many times when I've looked at someone and gone, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I, I really like this photograph. Because five years ago, I, I didn't have any taste whatsoever for, I mean, a, a classic for me, a classic example is Richard Avedon. I, I used to. I used to say, oh, I don't, I don't like Avedon. I don't understand why anyone likes this stuff. And I, it was during a podcast interview and I sort of, I, I caught myself and went, God, how long has it been since I even looked at Avedon? Like this is an 18 year old's assessment, right? Mm -hmm. of, of Avedon. It's not my current assessment. And I don't, so I went back and I, I looked up Avedon and looked at his portrait work and his murals and, and I bought some books and I was like, all the things I didn't like about Avedon 10 years ago, I love now, like they are what make it for me. Yeah. Just like I used to hate Brussels sprouts and now I choose my recipe, uh, my restaurants based on how well they do their Brussels sprouts. <laughs> we change, we grow and you've got to allow that to inform what you do and how you do it. Or otherwise, you know, you will still be, I was 14 when I picked up a camera. I, I could go to my grave still being a 14 year old photographer in that sense if I didn't expose myself to other influences. When it came to Lee Friedlander, I didn't hate Lee Friedlander. I would just look at the images and I, could, and I just didn't get it. And then one day I got it. And it was really satisfying to know that I had grown in terms of my, the way, my sensibility in terms of photography, that I could recognize what he was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's always, for me, one of the nice pleasures, especially when I'm looking at work that is challenging me in terms of me trying to understand what it is that is so good about them, right? Mm -hmm. 
because mm-hmm. I just don't want to get on the bandwagon because everyone else is saying it's great. I'm trying to understand why this work is considered exceptional. And sometimes it's not easy, right. you know, especially when I was looking at some, uh, some years ago, the work of Japanese photographers who had aesthetic mm-hmm. considerations that were very different from the West. And yes. I would take a look at those photographs and I was just like, why, why do they believe that this is such a good picture? Because they were making, they had a whole different set of thoughts behind the creation of those photographs that I had no relation to. Mm-hmm. I think you used a, a, a phrase that I think is really important in the sense that y- you you suddenly understood what they were trying to do. And and that, to me, is everything. Because looking at the image, to go circle all the way back to the beginning of this conversation about thing, you know, the considerations of is it good or not, that is far less important. It's far less interesting than what were they trying to accomplish you know, and learning, sitting at their feet and going, all right, teach me something. Because clearly I don't get it. But rather than brushing it off and going, ah, my five-year-old could do that. Going, all right, <laughs> yeah. maybe. But they didn't. And this wasn't a five-year-old. So what were they trying to accomplish? It may not be for you, but you miss an incredible opportunity to learn if you don't sit down and try to f- at least figure it out and give them. Let's all assume that the photographer's made their choices fairly intentionally, knew what they were doing. And instead of going, yeah, he's crap. I don't see what everyone else likes about him going, okay, it may not be to my taste, but what was he trying to accomplish? What was she trying to accomplish? And you may not like Sally Mann or Dorothea Lange or, you know, whomever, but you can always learn something. You can always sit there and you don't need them to be present to speculate and to unpack what they were trying to accomplish. And even just, you know, just guess at it mm-hmm. is an incredible learning opportunity because it always goes from there to, okay, so if that's the case, like why, why did they use this particular lens or this particular framing or make use of balance and tension or line or gesture or choice of all of this stuff if you can start there and then go, okay, given that, what might they have been trying to do? Man, your thinking as a photographer when you have the camera to your face is going to totally change. Yeah. And that that's to me is the most important part because eventually it's my own joy of being out there and trying to somehow give my subject, whatever that chosen subject is, its best expression. And my camera can't do that on its own. You know, I've got to make these choices and it's not just about being sharp and well exposed. It's a million other things that in the end will make that image what it is. Well, let's just say that the photographer is applying all that we're talking about in the process of making the photographs. So they come upon a scene, a moment, they exhaust all the possibilities, they go back home and they download the images to the computer, they open it up in Photoshop and Lightroom, and then they go, they struggle, you know? I see uh-huh. it all the time. They just don't know which of these pictures is the better one. So how do they apply this sensibility that we've been encouraging them to apply in making the photographs to the process of culling the images down to the one or two that are most effective? Uh-huh. Well, I think, I mean, this, so my answer goes hand in hand with what I said before about it has to happen simultaneously with your growth as a as an artist you have to be training your taste you have to to be uh not just trusting your gut but training it and having a sense of why you like and prefer the things you do but i can only speak to my the way that i do things when i pull up uh you know my thousands of images in lightroom i am not looking for all of the images that don't suck uh you know (laughs) 
I, I'm not looking for, okay, images that suck will get like two stars, but three stars are for and above are for those that don't suck. And so I'm just going through and going, oh, I don't know, is this a two? Is it a three? Is it a, is it a one? Maybe it's a four. I don't know. I, it, to me, it's it either works or it doesn't. You're, you're looking through it. And I don't know where this uh, compulsion to get like the most amount of images. And then you look at them and you go, yeah, but there's like 30 of them. They're all practically the same at a certain point. And I acknowledge that this is from someone who's been behind the camera for 30 plus years. At a certain point, you need to just look at your work and go, look, that image either works for you or it doesn't. And you can take it and I mean, you've got to see the possibilities, right? Maybe there are some things you can do in Lightroom to refine it, but you are not going to polish that turd to the point where it goes from being a, yeah, that's a shitty image to, wow, this is the, you know, Elliot Erwitt move over, forget it, mm -hmm. you know? So, so for me, it's simply a question of, I go through my stuff and I go, there it is. Look at that. Like I look at them in thumbnails. I see, I look at the gesture, the balance, the tension, which to me is more easily seen on a smaller scale. And then I, I go, yes, that's it. And then I pull it up and either it is in fact it, or it's, there's that disappointing moment when you realize it really isn't as sharp as I would like it or want it to be for what I'm trying to accomplish. Or, you know, there's some other flaw in it, you know, oh, it's perfect. And yet, you know, the guy's got his eyes closed or whatever it is. And then, okay, can I find a similar one that has the same gesture, the same moment where the eyes are open? Or maybe you just go, huh, okay, well, I blew it. And you move on rather than, okay, I've got another image with the guy with his eyes open. Maybe I can, you know, open them as layers in Photoshop and paint in the, the eyes or paint out. The, if that's your thing, go for it. But for me, I prefer just to go through and say, look, I'm just looking for one, two, three, maybe 10, however many, but but there's no like uh, the only standard is does that image scratch that itch for which I made the photograph in the first place? When I look through it, I either go, oh, wow, look at that. Or, yes, I love that. Or, hmm, that's really interesting. I got to look at this some more. I never go into it with the intention of getting as many images as possible. And I think that's one of the first things people can do to make editing a little bit easier and a little bit more fruitful is not put all this pressure on themselves. Look, just look for one, look for the absolute best image that really does it for you and be happy with that. And don't try to make the ones that aren't working. Don't try to make them work for you. They may work on a second or third edit when your expectations are different, when you're looking for, maybe you're looking for a color image for a magazine cover and you do a second edit and you're like, oh, why didn't I see this before? This is perfect for the cover. This is because you were looking for a horizontal black and white image that fit into a particular series. You weren't thinking color, vertical, you know, that doesn't fit into the series, but still might be now a photograph that really does what you want it to do. Alongside of that, though, I've got to reiterate, you, you still need to, you can't trust your gut if your gut doesn't know anything. Right. You've got to mm -hmm. train your gut and your instincts. And But even then, you know, I wouldn't say, well, you know, if you've only been doing photography for five years and you really, really like an image, well, you don't know anything, move over. I'll, I'll show you your best image. No, it's your work. You have to own it. And at a certain point, you've got to have the courage to just say, yeah, maybe David, maybe I don't know exactly why I love this, but I love it and I resonate with it. Great. Great. Let's see if it stands the test of time. Put it in your five stars and sit with it, live with it, print it, hang it on your wall. And let's talk about it in 10 years. Let's see if it endures. You know, that would be the test. Does it endure? Yeah, a, a few of my images have been me reacting to something and just making a couple of frames. 
the great majority of them have have been me seeing a scene and parsing it for light and shadow, line and shape, color, mm-hmm. making the choices in terms of the frame, and when waiting for the the flourish, you know, that juxtaposition of someone moving through the scene or the wind blowing that branch down just just right. And so when mm-hmm. it comes down to me choosing which of those photographs works, I already have what I'm going for. So I may have made 12, 24, 50 images, but when I'm sitting down in front of the computer, I'll flag like maybe three of them that are close to it, and then I compare those three to figure out which of those three got the closest. It's because I started in my mind with what I was going for. It wasn't just what I was photographing, it was how I was envisioning the moment even before it happened. And so when Uh it comes down to culling it, it becomes an easier process. And hopefully one of those frames is close enough to make me, to make me happy. But if, even if it isn't for me, there's something very satisfying from just the practice of applying my seeing in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's, let's talk about that just a little before we, we wrap up, because I think there's, there's, there's too much emphasis placed on a good session of photography being measured by the success in whatever way you define it of the photograph and not enough about just the sheer pleasure of practicing it. Yeah, I I think everyone does this for different reasons. And, you know, I had a a friend who uh, often says very wise things to me that kind of give me a different perspective on things. And, you know, at one point he said, you know, David, not everyone, not everyone wants to even to make a compelling photograph. Some people are just camera collectors and they want to push the buttons. And so that's the one extreme. And the other extreme is those for whom the photograph, the final product is everything. And in the middle, there are there are various shades of people that like certain parts of the process more than others. And some really love printing and getting the stuff into their hands. Some really love being in front of the computer and others. They just want to be out there with a camera. And I'm I'm a little of everything. I, when I was much younger, if I couldn't afford film, I would still go make photographs. Like I would just <laughs> I'd go out with my Pentax Spotmatic and I would practice. They're not a I mean, no film in my bag, not not a, even a 12 exposure roll, but I would go and I would faithfully expose and I would focus and I would because looking through that lens, never mind the fact that it was helping me get better at my craft, looking through that lens and seeing the world framed and flattened, isolated in the way that particular optics could do, it meant something to me. It was uh, on its own an experiential thing that I loved and I felt more alive and still when I have my camera whether or not any I could go to India for two weeks and yeah I'd be disappointed if I came home and didn't have 12 or maybe 24 images that I could add to a body of work but honestly while I'm in the moment with that camera to my face and I'm moving around and I'm seeing that place and that moment with greater depth and intimacy than anyone that's just walking by and I love that on its own just for the just for the process of it. If I make something, it sort of scratches a particular itch that I love and I, I, I want to do more of it. And I love seeing when that, when it actually works, when you've got a vision for something and you make the photograph and then you're in the edit and you're like, oh, yes, yeah. it worked. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I lo-, and it takes you back to that moment. And the magic that you saw there, there's something completely incomparable about that. But even if I got back and found that, you know, I hadn't got an SD card in my camera, 
I, you know what? I still would have had a magical experience all on its own, just rearranging the elements and moving around and playing with the light and being just being present and more alive. It's, there's there's something magic. I think photography helps us be more alive in this world, and I think that's that to me is again like like I said at some point in my life I'm going to look back and I'm going to see these images that were so good at the time and go eh <laughs> you know they they did it for me as a 20 year old man as a 30 year old man but maybe if I'm lucky I'll hit you know 80 or 90 and I'll look back in my career and go you know there, maybe I really made 12 images that that can abide that have the you know, the test of time that have, as Robert Frank said, you know, that express the humanity of the moment. Mm -hmm. um, that would be great. But if there were none, my career, I think, would still be a success for having spent those, a big chunk of those 80 years, seeing the world uh, more intimately and more presently than I would have if, if I didn't have the camera to begin with. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, gosh, I have got such a long list. I, I, I was, okay, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to go two because one's <laughs> black and white and one's color. I was in Italy last year. Um, and we often go to Venice in the fall or uh, late winter. And anyway, I was... I was there and I was at a gallery and they had a showing of a French photographer named Willie Roney. The last name is R-O-N-I-S, I believe. And I he blew my mind. He was everything I loved about Cartier-Bresson and Robert Doineau and and the you know the the sort of French black and white, the humanist photography movement. And yet felt like he had a little bit more passion and sense of humor and I just I was so captivated by his work and so I bought this big I don't know why I keep doing this I always buy the biggest friggin book I can and then I lug it around Europe for the rest of of my time but uh, I bought this big big gorgeous book of photographs by Willie Roney and I love his work so I would highly recommend him and more contemporarily if you are not and I don't know who is not yet familiar with Alex Webb, but I only discovered him last year. And um, a friend recommended that I read The Suffering of Light. I was blown away. I, I, there's something, the layers of complexity in Alex Webb's work and the, the poetry of the way that he chooses moments and frames them, it just astonishing so if you know if you're looking for for influence in either direction i alex webb the suffering of light he's got many books but that is the one that i have experience with and i'm just captivated by and then willie roney uh also i mean you could look these people up on the internet and just marvel at their images online but i think there's no substitute for getting a printed book holding it in your hand and really spending time with these with these people and seeing you know what is it that they were trying to accomplish well david thank you so much it's always been a pleasure to, to speak with you yeah thank you thanks to david for joining us you can find out more about him and his work by visiting daviddusheman.com and if you purchase his book, please consider using our Amazon affiliate link as it provides you another way to support the show. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. 
Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up, where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way to support the show. Purchase that in any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Kambua Chema for his recent contributions. We really appreciate it. And if you found that you can't find every episode on the show, download the Candra Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases required. The Candra Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incombatech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.